What I hope to do tonight is finish up with psalms having to do with the Messiah ben Yosef. And I'm not going to read them all. I'm going to spend the time we have in, in three of them. And as I was reading the book by Dave Mitchell, Messiah ben Yosef, he's got a long section on Zechariah. So I'm sort of thinking about going into Zechariah next. I've always kind of had trouble with Zechariah. But some really interesting stuff in it, according to Mitchell. And I've done Zechariah twice, and I've never come up with a series that I was happy enough with to post on the website. So I'm considering taking a third shot at it. So if anybody strongly objects and says, failed twice, why are you trying again? You know, that kind of thing. By all means, let me know. So what we've been doing for the last three weeks is talking about the Psalms in the context of Messiah ben Joseph. And what we did last week was Psalm 110 and the book of Hebrews. And the thing that Psalm 110 does is it introduces the idea of a king and a priest in the same person. As you, of course, all know, the priestly class comes out of the tribe of Levi and kings come out of Ephraim and Judah. There have been Israelite kings in the past who have tried to do things in a priestly role and they generally got into trouble. The only priestly kings that we have were the Maccabees and they didn't last very long. So the idea of a king and a priest rolled into one, I don't think it's unique to 110 in Hebrews, but certainly that's the largest treatment of it. And obviously what that does is you have a Messiah who can be a conquering military man, as Yeshua will be on his return. You also have a Messiah who can be a king, as Yeshua will be on his return. And you also have a Messiah then who can sacrifice and provide a sacrifice for the forgiveness of willful sin. So the idea of packing all those into a single person seems to come up in Psalm 110 and of course is explained in Hebrews, which is what we did last time. So I'm going to do three Psalms tonight, mostly with respect to mentioning the Messiah. And you'll remember when we started this, According to Mitchell, the space between Psalm 60 and Psalm 108 are heavily salted with Ephraimite references. And they're also heavily salted with Psalms of Asaph and the Psalms of Korah's sons. And as you remember, Psalm 108 and Psalm 60 had several verses that were copies of one another to give you the idea that you were dealing with a chiasm there. So this middle section I'm going to spend a few minutes in tonight. So I'm going to start with Psalm 80, and I'll read what the rabbis say. Psalm 80, the Targum reads verse 15 as the most Josephite psalm. The shoot that your right hand planted 
and the King Messiah whom you made mighty for yourself. That's rabbinic commentary. We'll get into the psalm itself. And then Ibn Ezra uh, comments on the same verse, and in verse 17 saying, Upon the man of your right hand, Psalm 80, 17, this means the stock which his right hand has planted, Psalm 80, 15, by way of a metaphor. And it represents Israel or Messiah ben Ephraim. You all have been through the Torah lots of times, and you remember first off the blessings on Joseph versus the blessings on Judah. And you also remember that when Jacob adopted Ephraim and Manasseh as being co-equal with his sons as opposed to being grandsons. I mean, they're still his grandsons, obviously, biologically, but he elevates them to the status of his own sons, which effectively gives Joseph a double portion. And you remember in the blessings at the end of Genesis, his actual firstborn biologically is Reuben. And he cuts Reuben out, saying, you're not qualified. So the firstborn of Jacob then becomes Joseph. So references to firstborns, references to fruitfulness, references to the right hand, and references to the horns of a wild ox are all references back to Joseph. That's how the rabbis see it, and I kind of agree with them. You don't have to if you don't want to. It's obviously a metaphoric reading into it. And, oh, by the way, one other thing. That I'm not going to do any of the Korah Psalms tonight, but one of the things that Mitchell pointed out that I had never really noticed before, you all remember the story of Korah's rebellion, where Korah comes to Moses and says, okay, I got it. You're God's chosen guy, but the fact that you made your brother the high priest is nepotism. And you went way too far there because we're all on the same plane. And Moses being a Levite and having sort of a temper on him, first off calls him to come up and negotiate, and they said, we will not come up. In other words, we aren't listening to you at all. So Moses goes to their tents and he says, God, if these people die a natural death, I'm not your man. But if the ground opens up and swallows them alive, then I am. And of course, the ground opens up and swallows them alive and down they go. Well, the sons of Korah write a number of psalms. And something Mitchell pointed out that I hadn't ever caught was those psalms not all of them, but some of them have this theme of resurrection, being rescued from the pit, being lifted up out of Sheol, which you would expect then if their father, father several generations removed, if that's what had happened to him, that's sort of on their minds. And I thought that was kind of an interesting observation, that that would be something that would be on their minds as they were writing psalms. There's again, it's one of the little interesting tidbits. So anyway, both Asaph and the sons of Korah, this is again according to Mitchell, were in the north. And they were in Ephraimite territory. They're Levites, so they are doing Levite stuff. But you remember the Levites are scattered throughout the entire nation. 
And according to Mitchell, Asaph and the sons of Korah were in the Ephraimite portion of Israel. And their psalms contain Ephraimite references more than most. So, all right, Psalm 80. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, who led Joseph like a flock. So we're talking about Joseph. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. So we're talking about the northern kingdom, if you will. I'm not sure when the psalm was written, but according to Mitchell, the organization of the psalms, gathering them into five books and organizing them the way they are, he says happened after the Babylonian exile. So the psalm itself may very well have been written before that. It may be talking about the destruction of the northern kingdom. That isn't clear. So verse 3. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. This sort of feels like after the Assyrian invasion, which would mean that Asaph was not taken out during that invasion. Because during the Assyrian invasion, you remember, the Ephraimites and all the northern tribes were taken out and they were replaced by Samaritans. So the idea of Asaph talking about that invasion would indicate that he fled south and was still part of Israel after Assyria. But I don't know that. That's speculation on my part. Verse 7. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. All right, this idea of a vine. That's Joseph. Because you remember that in the Deuteronomy passage, you had this vine that goes over the wall. And so a vine coming out of Egypt is Joseph. So you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It set out branches to the sea and it shoots to the river. The idea here is Joseph is blessed with fruitfulness. And the metaphor of a fruitful Joseph is a vine. And of course the river we're talking about here is the Euphrates. Genesis 49:22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. Its branches run over the wall. Archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the mighty one of Jacob. And my translation says a fruitful bough. Other translations will say a fruitful vine. And so the idea then of a vine or a bough going over the walls is Josephite. So back now to Psalm 80, verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? 13. The boar from the forest ravages it. All that move in the field feed on it. I don't know whether it's significant or not, but of course a boar would be an unclean animal. Verse 14. 
Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. All Ephraimite imagery. The blessing of the right hand and the vine and so forth. Verse 16. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish in the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. By the way, lest anybody get confused, remember Benjamin is son of my right hand. That's what his name means. Remember when Rachel died in childbirth, she named him Benoni, son of my sorrow, and Jacob changed it to son of my right hand. This is not the son of the right hand, but the man of your right hand. In other words, the hand that you use to bless Ephraim. So if you were thinking in the back of your head that we're talking about Benjamin here, none of the imagery here is Benjaminite. It's all Ephraimite and Joseph. So verse 16 again. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. The son of man is a messianic term. Yeshua calls himself the son of man over and over again. So let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is talking about Joseph. It's talking about a messianic figure. The next one I'm going to go to is Psalm 89. Let me read what the commentary from the rabbi says. The mashkel of Ethan the Ezraite, and I believe Ethan the Ezraite is of Joseph. So Psalm 89, in the Pesikta Rabati, number 36, the Holy One, blessed be He, will reply to Satan, He is the Messiah, and His name is Ephraim, my righteous Messiah, who will give light to the eyes of Israel and deliver His people, and no nation or people will be able to withstand Him. As it is said, the enemy shall not do Him violence, nor the son of wickedness afflict Him. That's Psalm 89.22. And all his enemies and adversaries shall be beaten before him, as it is said, I will beat to pieces his adversaries before him. And that's verse 23. And even seas and rivers will stop flowing, as it is said, I will set his hand also on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. So now let's look at the psalm. What happens in this psalm is... It's talking about David at first. So the first two-thirds of it are about David. And then it shifts. So let's read it. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said... I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So this is obviously David, son of Judah. It is not Ephraim. 
Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? O God, greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones, and awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. So this is, again, very familiar-sounding psalm of David. It wasn't written by David, but it's a very familiar Davidic kind of a psalm. So verse 11. The heavens are yours, the earth also is yours, the world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon joyously praise your name. Tabor and Hermon are in Ephraim. You have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, our horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King to the Holy One of Israel. And by the way, according to Mitchell, the horn and the shield are Josephite symbols. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one, and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him, my arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him, the wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. Now, the rabbinic commentary on this that I just read says that the enemy shall not do him violence, nor the son of wickedness afflict him, and all his enemies and adversaries shall be beaten down before him. They see this as being Joseph. I don't know where they get that, but they do, because it feels very Davidic to me. It's their language, not mine. I just try and use it. 25. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. This is starting to feel messianic. Certainly, anointing with oil and so forth is messianic. But this idea that he's got his hands on the river and calms the seas and so forth is more than an earthly king. 25, I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We've just shifted. There's nothing about David that is firstborn. He is not even the firstborn of his father. Judah is not the firstborn of Jacob. Joseph is the firstborn. So what's happened here is we have started off with David and the imagery has shifted on us. So 27, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. 
And the imagery of firstborn is Josephite. But the other imagery of firstborn is Yeshua. Remember in the genealogies of Yeshua, with I think one exception, everybody in his genealogy is not a firstborn son. I think there is one, I don't remember which one it is, but most of them are not. So what God has done is reserved the position of firstborn for his own son. Messianically, however, Joseph is the firstborn of Israel. And by the way, 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God and the rock of my salvation. So this idea of the son of man, the son of God, etc. 28, my steadfast love I will keep for him forever and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. That feels like earthly Messiah. You see the play of symbols that's going on here? 34, I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. So now we're back to Davidic imagery. 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. All right, so what we've got above here is I will never renounce. And now we have, you have renounced. So you have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. Notice, by the way, that the imagery there is the same as we just read in Psalm 80. Broken down walls, everybody passing by, plundering. Here, however, we lack the vine image. So it may simply be the result of warfare. Verse 42, you have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You had made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You are cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. 46, how long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? And in 42, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. That word vanity is used over and over again in Ecclesiastes. 
The word is hevel, and what it means is insubstantial. We tend to think of vanity as pride. The meaning here is not pride, it's ephemeral. 49. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So you have, if you will, images from both Judah and Joseph as we go through this. And one of the things that I've said many times and worth repeating here is Yeshua, who is the Messiah, is the legal son of Joseph and is the biological descendant of David. So the idea here of this imagery weaving in and out between Joseph and David, I am going to suggest to you is due to the fact that the actual Messiah has got, if you will, lineage from both Joseph and Judah. In the book of Luke, his genealogy is he is the son, as was supposed, of Joseph. So Luke you know, recognizes his divine birth, but also recognizes that on the Roman tax rolls, he's the son of Joseph. So when you have this imagery weaving in and out in the psalm, I think that that's perfectly in character with who the actual Messiah is. Right, the last one we're going to do here is Psalm 92, interpreted of Messiah ben Joseph in several texts. Here, for instance, in the Perkei de Rabbi Eliezer comments, but you exalted like a ram my horn. Ram, remember, is the wild ox, the auric that we talked about early on. But you exalted like a ram my horn, just as the horns of the ram are taller than those of all beasts and animals, and it gores to its right and to its left. So with Menachem ben Amiel ben Joseph, his horns are taller than those of all kings, and he will gore in the future towards the four corners of the heavens. That is imagery out of Deuteronomy 33. And about him Moses said, the firstborn of his shore, shore is a bull as opposed to a ram. Two different Hebrew words. One of them is what we call an auric or a wild ox. The other one is a domestic bull. And as we've said several times, the firstborn of a domestic bull is a sacrificial animal, according to Torah. So his horns are taller than those of all kings, and he will gore in the future toward the four corners of the heavens. And about him Moses says, the firstborn of his shore, majesty is his, and the horns of a ram are his horns. With them he shall gore the peoples all as one, even to the ends of the earth. That's Deuteronomy 33:17, as I just said. Midrash in Psalm 92, verses 10 and 11 is similar. But you exalted like a ram my horn, just as the horns of the ram are high, and he gores the four corners of the earth. So Menachem ben Amiel ben Joseph gores to the four corners of the earth. And about him Moses said, the firstborn of his shore, so forth. And then I'm going to skip down 
same commentary. And these are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and these are the thousands of Manasseh. And against him will rise all the kings to kill him. As it is said, the kings of the earth will arise, that's Psalm 2, and Israel and the land will be in great distress. But in their distress, they will be like an olive tree. As it is said, you have anointed me with fresh oil, and my eye shall look upon my enemy, those who rise against me. And Israel will behold their downfall, as it is said, and my eye shall look upon my enemy. So the idea here is in the Messianic age, according to Psalm 2 and according to Revelation, the kings of the earth will rise up against Israel and they will be struck down in that instance by God. So, Psalm 92. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night, to the music of the lute and harp, to the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the work of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord, your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know them. The fool cannot understand this, that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever, for behold your enemies, O Lord, for behold your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like the horn of the wild ox. That's what we just talked about. It's Deuteronomy 33 imagery. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. Pouring oil on someone is anointing or making a Messiah. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They shall still bear fruit in old age, and they are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. This image of fruitfulness, even into old age, if you will, is Josephite. So you have an anointed one of the tribe of Joseph. So there is what I was planning to do. Shama